today our oh is this on? Okay. Today our text is from Ezekiel thirty six, twenty two to twenty eight. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord our God, oops, the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, and when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin our dive into the book of Ezekiel, let's bow our heads and pray that God would give us eyes to see. Who holds our faith when fears arrive, arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? God, we haven't experienced what the people of Jerusalem did yet so many, for so many of us. The dark and stormy clouds of life have crowded in and shaken our faith, caused us to be weak and utterly dependent upon you, and we need to know that you are alive, that you are working for our good. And so we proclaim in confidence, Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And we want to see that he is alive and that because he lives, we will live with him forever. Show us that confidence through your messenger, Ezekiel. Through these words, an ordinary man speaking to ordinary people who want to delight in an extraordinary God, lift our eyes to Christ. Amen. My daughter Daisy's life has been a constant living parable proclaiming God's truth to me. She often very dramatically lives out what God wants me to learn about myself. And one of the overarching themes that constantly comes up that she has shown me in her journey into our home is that things often get worse, much worse, before they get even better. 
God has promised to all who are in Christ that we have an amazing eternal life promised to us. But before we can get there, we are going to need to experience quite a bit of discomfort. The first few years of Daisy's life were much more difficult than most of us will ever experience. When we adopted her, she was a four-year-old girl living in an orphanage in Uganda, and she needed a family. She needed an education. She needed medical care and nourishment. She needed opportunities to grow into the woman God designed her to be. She had no idea she needed these things. Her life had led her to just cling to whatever gave her comfort. Even as a little girl, she had figured out how to eke out meager peace and comfort living in an orphanage. All things considered, it was a rather nice orphanage, and she had grown quite comfortable there. But every kid really needs a family, a mom and a dad, to flourish, to reach their potential. And then Daisy was matched to join our family. And when we arrived, all of her friends and caretakers danced and sang a song welcoming us to be united with this little girl. And she had no idea what was going on. But caught up in the emotion of the moment, she joined the song and dance full of joy and hope until she arrived at our house. When, in her mind, everything got far worse than ever before. She was in a strange place. Nothing was familiar. Nobody looked like her. Nobody had the same accent as her. Everything smelled different, tasted different, sounded different. In this unfamiliar land, even though so much good was promised to her, when chaos comes in, it makes you just want to run back to the last thing that gave you any sense of peace. And so for a while, she fought for some stability. But over time, her heart grew comfortable and she began to see these promises become reality. She learned that she was safe. She began to understand that there are wonderful opportunities for happiness in our home. She was finally able to use this incredible mind God gave her to grow in understanding of how the world works. Very, very quickly, with some medical care and good food, she sprouted up. She shot up in height and grew strong. So now she's able to play games and sports like she's never imagined before. She's got a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters who will always be family to her. It really did get a lot better. But it had to get quite a bit worse for her to get there. This is the story of Israel in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel follows a little bit after Jeremiah's great warnings that God is going to bring punishment on the city of Jerusalem from the hands of the Babylonians. And Ezekiel and his friends, his brothers and sisters in Israel, were the first group of people to be taken out of their home and transported to a far-off land where now in the book of Ezekiel, they find themselves in a refugee settlement wondering, how did we get here? Things were bad. 
But they had hope that things were about to get better. The temple still stood in Jerusalem. That meant God is on his throne. And very soon they were certain he is coming to rescue them. But they didn't realize things were about to get much worse before they got any better. What they were missing in the equation was God's holiness. They didn't realize there was this huge obstacle in their path of returning back to God's presence in His temple. They didn't realize that God fights for His holy name to be known among His people. This is Ezekiel's main point. Yes, there is peace and joy available for God's people, but only in a right relationship with Him. And if you aren't right with God, you need to know that God will fight in your life for His holy name. The first two-thirds of this book is like this dramatic funeral procession for Israel and all the nations explaining God's victory over their idolatry. Chapters 1-32 through show Ezekiel illustrating the impending death of Israel and the nations. But then in chapters 33 to 48, Ezekiel gives hope of a renewed relationship with God in his restoration of the temple. First things need to get far worse, but then they will get so much better. So if you haven't turned here yet, open your Bibles or open them back to Ezekiel chapter 36. And we're going to use this text as a launching point into these sections of Ezekiel. Well, just read verses 22 and 23 one more time to prepare for God's victory over idolatry. God says to Ezekiel, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So before Ezekiel can get to the good news about restoring them to their land and all the blessings He needs to emphasize the main reason God is going to act. It's not because God pities them that he looks down on them and says, Ooh, what a bummer of circumstances you're in. I think I could probably help you out. God is going to save them to restore honor to his own name because they have made God look bad. They've made him look weak, unattractive, untrustworthy. God needs to fix that problem. This is an important perspective shift for the people in exile because they feel like they're the victims in this whole thing. They pity themselves, wondering what in the world happened. Why does bad thing, such a bad thing happen to good people like us? Where is God in all of this? You know, maybe the Babylonian gods are stronger than our God. Does our God even care about us? Ezekiel answers back with this great vision he has in the first few chapters of the book. God calls him into ministry by showing him what's happening in the world by putting some spiritual lenses on. And he sees God on 
this amazing, spectacular, mighty chariot throne. The wheels of the chariot are spinning swiftly. Surrounding the throne are a bunch of these strange, beast-like, angelic creatures. This vision is supposed to give them confidence that God is on His throne, He's on His war chariot, and He is coming to fight. All of those beasts around the throne, if you study ancient history, they actually look very much like statues of the Babylonian gods. Telling us God has power and authority over them. He can command the nations to do whatever He wants. God is in control. He's coming to fight, to restore right order. But as we've seen in Jeremiah and Isaiah, God on His throne isn't exactly the best news. And Ezekiel uses this dramatic imagery in the next 30 chapters to show that God isn't coming on His chariot to rescue Israel. He's coming to defeat them. Ezekiel begins with a few of these strange, dramatic displays acting out their perilous situation. Just like my daughter Daisy, Ezekiel's life becomes God's message to his people. So Ezekiel builds this tiny model of Jerusalem and then brings all these little army men to destroy it. He shaves his beard off, chops it up in tiny pieces and burns it to say, this is what's going to happen to you. He lays on his side for a year and then on his other side for another year. Weird stuff to show their utter weakness and helplessness before God. And he eats food cooked over dung to show them how they are feeding themselves on disgusting false worship. Why does he supplement his preaching with this performance art. I debated whether I should do something like that up here, but Justin said no. <laughs> he, he has to use all of the senses to captivate their attention because hardened and disobedient people are unable to grasp the gravity of their theological reality. People who have ears and can't see and can't hear and eyes and can't see will not understand the depths of their offense against God unless they're smacked in the face with it. Not really going to do the Bible thumping thing on your head, but just very dramatic displays to capture their attentions. We think in our lives that all of our difficulties that we face are just due to political differences, public health emergencies, educational challenges, maybe economic trouble. But the truth is much deeper than all of those things. We have a worship problem. We put our trust in the wrong gods. They worshipped statues and kings and spiritual phenomenon in the sky. We worship intellectualism, degrees, politics, careers and prosperity. 
Ezekiel uses all of this dramatic imagery to captivate their imaginations, to engage their heart's affections, to help them feel the seriousness of their peril and turn them back to God. And in chapters 8 to 10, he reveals to Ezekiel the heart of the problem, how bad this worship is. He picks Ezekiel up out of Babylon, transports him into the heart of Jerusalem, right into the temple, and shows them how bad it's gotten. Ezekiel looks around and realizes right there in the temple, in God's house, God is not being worshipped. Foreign idols are being erected and worshipped there. The elders of Israel have built a statue in the temple for the people to come and worship. Women are gathering around, bowing down to the Babylonian god Tammuz. Israel has become unhinged. The very place where heaven and earth meet together. The God of heaven and earth is being mocked. They're not even close to fulfilling their call to represent His holiness. It's so bad that He uses language of creation. Showing that creation is being undone. Everything about how God has made the world has been flipped upside down with idolatry. God made people to worship Him. We made in His image to reflect Him. And then we turn it around and we worship the creation and fashion creation into things that make us look good. God says that the sons of Adam have not filled the earth with His image, but we have filled the earth with violence. And so God is going to fight for His holy name by undoing creation. In a dramatic scene in chapter 10, God departs from his temple. At the, in Genesis 3, he kicked Adam and Eve out of the temple, out of Garden of Eden. Now he's departing himself. I'm going to remove myself from this place. And the chariot, the war chariot turns around back upon the place that was supposed to be a reminder of the garden where God and man walked together, where they worked together to fill the earth with his life giving presence. And now, just like the flood, he's going to destroy it all. And the rest of these sections are just like a funeral march for a dying creation, for a defeated people. He uses more dramatic imagery to get the people's attention. He says in chapter 15 that Israel is like a useless piece of wood brought to the construction site and it doesn't fit anywhere. So the only thing to use it for is burn it in the wood, in the fire. In chapter 16, Israel is like an unfaithful wife who is never satisfied in her husband's provision. In chapter 19, Israel is a once powerful, mighty lion who's trapped caught in a feeble trap. They are a life-giving vineyard that has dried up. Chapter 23, he describes Israel and the nations as identical sisters, promiscuous sisters seeking attention from anyone but their father. They've reached the point of no return. They, they can't be rescued from this situation. And Ezekiel is simply called to lament the death of Israel as God arrives on his chariot to destroy them. 
Ezekiel's dramatic preaching of the funeral march takes on full effect when his own wife dies in chapter 24 as a picture of the death of God's own beloved. The remaining chapters reiterate the complete undoing of the world because of the death of Israel. Just like Adam and his death in sin put a curse on all the earth, now Israel's sin will be the downfall of all the nations. Creation is being undone. Everything is returning to dust because God will not let His holy name, His glorious image be mocked any longer. But God, but God had a plan from the beginning. He made promises to Eve, to Abraham, to David, to countless other people that he would restore all things. He was going to make his people numerous as the stars in the sky. He was going to restore the garden and put someone on the throne forever. He was going to dwell with his people again. God intended to keep those promises, which he hints more clearly at in Ezekiel 36 again. Let's return to verse 24 and see how things are going to get much better after they get worse. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your father's And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. (sighs) Into this wasteland that God's people find themselves, God speaks words of hope. Transformation. They lie in a dark chaos that gives you the same feelings as Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. Darkness covered the face of the waters. But... The Spirit was there, ready to bring new life. Here in the land, it's empty. There's no life in it anymore. But God is speaking a new creation, new life into this wasteland. He wants to show the world that He is holy. He's glorious. He's mighty. That life only comes from Him. And what better way to do that than to turn everything into dust and show everybody, watch this, life Out of the dust. A brand new world. This creation imagery borrowed from Genesis is all over this text. Verse 24 talks about all of them gathered from all over the world to be in one land. Verse 25 says the people are going to be washed with clean water. I don't like the word sprinkled there. It's like rain, the floods of the rain, the rain of the floods coming down and pouring on the land to wash it clean. He's going to, out of the rocky soil, bring 
flesh. Create hearts of flesh in verse 26. Just like He did with Adam in Genesis 2. He took Adam out of the dust of the ground. And then He's going to breathe a spirit of life into this new humanity. But unlike that last time, which still fell into death, this time, this humanity will live forever in obedience because the spirit He puts in them will be His own spirit. Which, in verse 27, makes this humanity able to obey God. He's restoring humanity to its original image-bearing identity. So, with Him, we can have dominion over the earth again. In verse 28, everything that was lost in the garden will be restored. Primarily, God will put this new people in a new land and He will walk with them in intimate peace and delight forever. Oh. This is a spectacular promise. It's a work so dramatic that everyone who witnesses it will know that He is holy. Just as He did with His earlier writings, Ezekiel needs to Do something dramatic. Use some imagery to help everyone understand what is happening. So in chapter 37, he gives a vivid picture of what this regeneration work will look like in the familiar story of the Valley of Dry Bones. It's like there's some army, large army died in the desert and their bodies have been decomposing for decades And all that's left is dry, brittle bones. If you touch them, they just turn to dust. And God tells Ezekiel to speak life into it. And before his eyes, the power of God's word begins creating, just as it did in Genesis 1, creating brand new life out of the dust. This is the type of work God must do to overcome our profaning of His holiness. The work that He will do to restore all things for His glory is not just forgiving people, making a few tweaks to their life, and then sending them back off on their way. It's a dramatic recreation of everything you see and everything about you. You are going to be restored, regenerated, remade. First, He must return you to the dust. And from that dust, He will create in you a new Spirit-filled life. The problem is not that we've just made a few mistakes, because, but because of our sin, we are dead. We are dead as dirt. We have died in our sin and have wasted away in a desert until our bodies have decomposed. We don't just need a second chance. We don't just need a, a hand up. To help us out of our adversity so we can be put on a a path of equity. We need our hearts, our minds, our bodies, everything completely remade. This is what he shows in chapters 40 to 48. God takes Ezekiel on a tour of this beautiful, huge new temple. Many people think this means that that somehow Israel is going to rebuild a temple somewhere in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, sometime in the future. But you got to remember that all of his imagery so far has been 
to make a point about some deeper spiritual reality. And here the rebuilt temple is symbolic of a completely remade creation where the garden will fill the entire earth. God's people will be holy throughout the world. He will dwell in peace with us forever. These images are strikingly similar to what John writes in the book of Revelation, where a river flows out of the throne room of God, watering the earth, creating a lush garden that provides healing for the nations. This is God's plan for His glory. He will fight to make His name known throughout the earth. And that fight means everything is going to die so that can all be reborn. It's so dramatic that it will require something as significant as the death and resurrection of His own Son. All of history has been hinting at it. Jesus said all the law and the prophets have spoken of this very truth. We see it all over in every story. Like in Noah's story, death to the old one, but out of the water comes a new creation. We see it in the story of the Exodus. Death to the old world in Egypt, but Israel born as a new nation through the waters of the Red Sea. Jonah experienced it personally in his rebellion running from God. God threw him into the depths of the sea, down to the bottoms of the mountains under the sea. That he was undone in the dark abyss. And there he was saved as he was brought up by a large fish and spit out, reborn onto a land to be obedient. Everyone needs to be born again. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Nicodemus chuckled, confused. (laughs) Jesus It's not exactly easy for an old guy like me to get back into my mother's womb. What are you talking about? And Jesus scolds him. You are a teacher in Israel. You have your Bible. You study and teach this thing. And you don't know and understand these things. He's telling Nicodemus, death to the old and birth of a new creation has been one of the primary themes of this entire story. Through every generation, made quite clear here in our text for today in Ezekiel, if you want to be part of God's kingdom forever, to live in peace and harmony in a renewed creation with the new humanity, you must be born again. You must be utterly recreated from the inside out. You must die to your old self and be reborn to a new life in Christ. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. All of creation today is on its funeral march to bury you in your sins. All of mankind is a valley of dry bones. It's just an illusion, all of the life that we have. It's decreating itself as we pursue idolatry. And it will take a miracle of recreation to make us alive again. And that's exactly what Paul says a couple of verses later. But God 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Jesus the perfect, righteous, holy Son of God entered into this death-filled, rebellious world. A world that does not care about God's holiness in order to take its curse upon Himself. He contributed nothing to the decay and the suffering that we experience, and yet He willingly marched into His own funeral in order to take the old creation with Him and bury it in the grave forever. God turned his war chariot against his own son to vindicate his holiness and to rescue his people. But on the first day of the week, just like day one in Genesis, up out of the darkness, God brought life. God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is a new Adam, the king of a new creation, so that anyone who puts their trust in Him will also be reborn to join Him in eternal life. Your old life put to death spiritually and one day physically in order to make your life brand new spiritually today and hopefully someday soon we will be resurrected with Him This is the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you are here today delighting in that good news, singing to Jesus, your heart poured out in praise to Him, putting your sin behind you, it is a miracle that God has recreated your spirit and put His spirit within you. Just as God said on day one, let there be light. And there was light. God has spoken into your life. Let there be life. And His Spirit came in you. Just like Ezekiel's valley of dry bones, He did a work in you to put flesh in your heart, put flesh on your dry bones to make you live for Him so that your life would be a living parable to the world around you of God's holiness, of death to your old life and resurrection to a new one. He is fighting in your life for His holy name to be made known. All of your sufferings and your sickness and your sorrow is God's way of laying it all flat. Undoing your old life so that the world can watch you and say, where is that life coming from? Nowhere in this world does life come out of destruction like that unless it's from God. Your trials are God simply... Removing the stain of sin so that when everything is remade, you will fit in his recreated world filled with his holiness. Many of you here today have not been recreated. Some of you may wonder, why am I even here? 
Why are all these people so excited to sing these songs? Some of us so out of tune. Why do they like to eat potluck food together after they worship? Isn't it a little weird that in the midst of a pandemic, we're all fighting to worship together? You guys are crazy to spend so much time reading this ancient book. Why? You could think of many other things you'd rather do with your free time. But that's because you are still lying dead in a valley of dry bones. While we live together and taste every time we gather on Sundays just a little flavor of the resurrection life to come. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus. This old world is marching along on its funeral mar- funeral procession and they don't even know it. And if you're not in Christ, you're going along with it. You must be born again. You need God to spree- speak His Word and breathe His Spirit into your flesh to give you eyes to see and ears to hear His wonderful works. Only by trusting in the death and resurrection of King Jesus can you be completely remade. And then, when you are, you begin the journey through waters of baptism, making your life a visible display, a living parable, declaring recreation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's died. It's buried. Behold, the new has been reborn out of the water. It's only by grace you can be saved from your addiction to drugs, addiction to pornography, addiction to career worldly success. It's only by His mercy you can be saved from fear and anxiety that plagues you. It's only by His power that you can stand against the tide of a dying world and march forward toward a new creation. And so Ezekiel's message is as simple as the end of chapter 18. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions you have committed. Why will you die? Don't go that way. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Let's pray. God, our world needs this dramatic recreation. Some in this room need to be remade with your spirit filling them. Their hearts turn to flesh. I pray that you would be doing that right now. And I pray that you would help us stand together as one body in Christ proclaiming to this city that we have died to ourselves. We have died to the pleasures of this world. And we are rising to the eternal pleasures of God in Christ. Help us live with that joy written on our face, with that peace flowing from our hearts, that we could be that river of life flowing from your throne room to bring healing to the nations by the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of your holy son, King Jesus. Amen.